Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come now to the preaching of your word, our confidence is not in ourselves and our own understanding, but in the power of your word and your spirit. Would you work in us to grant us understanding? And you would you work powerfully through your word and by your spirit in our hearts and minds for your own purposes and for your glory. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You'll open now uh, your Bibles to our sermon text, Zechariah chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, page 793 in the Pew Bibles. So, Zechariah chapter 1, 7 through 17. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, All the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these seventy years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord of hosts will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Amen. Last week we began our series on Zechariah with his first message to God's people. They had returned to the promised land after being in exile. They were living in Jerusalem in and the surrounding territory of Judah. They had now been back for 20 years. They had begun the work of rebuilding the temple, but after opposition, it had ceased and now languished. The people were now oppressed by the Persian Empire. They were deeply discouraged and they were wandering away from their God. 
It was in this setting that the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah with a call to repentance. Return to the Lord, and he will return to you. And as we saw, they did repent. And this set up for the rest of the book of Zechariah with its wonderful message of hope and restoration. This morning, as we look at this first vision, we will see that its central message is that God is with his people. And from his presence flows all comfort, all goodness, all blessing. And that is just as true for you, his people today, as it was for God's people in Zechariah's day. Emmanuel, God is surely with us. Before we jump into the meat of the text this morning, we'll begin with some introductory matters, looking at the date given in verse 7, and also considering some general principles of how to interpret prophetic visions. So, let's first read verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying. If you look at verse 7 and then you compare it back to verse 1, you compare the two, you'll see that the date given here is now three months after Zechariah's first message. This is the only date given for all of Zechariah's night visions, and so it appears that Zechariah saw all these visions in just one long night, which we can accurately date to mid-February 519 B.C. As we saw in our outline last week, these visions will continue all the way to the end of chapter 6. Now let me say a few things about prophetic visions. We tend to think of the prophets primarily receiving uh, revelation from the Lord in the form of words. And they declare, thus saith the Lord. But visionary revelation is also quite common. And all the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, received visions from the Lord. It was common for the Lord to not only reveal symbolic objects or events in a vision, but also to give a guide, an angel, to help interpret the meaning of what the prophet saw. Also, while many of the earlier prophets were sent primarily to confront God's people with their sin, to call them to repentance, we'll see that the general message of these visions is primarily one of comfort and hope to a downtrodden and afflicted people. Let me give you a few principles of interpretation that we'll use as we work through the visions this morning and in the coming weeks. We'll see in many ways these principles are similar to the way that we interpret Jesus' parables, and in a few ways they differ. Much like a parable, a vision will usually have one main point. Often there will be other less important points which serve to support the main point of the vision. So we will always be looking for, always asking, what is the main point of the vision? Also, like a parable, a vision will often have details which set the scene, but that cannot be reliably interpreted. If we attempt to give meaning to every single little detail, we'll end up allegorizing the vision and inserting our own details, our own ideas into Scripture. And we'll, we'll see that. To this morning as well. Also in a parable, there is often 
or in like a parable, there is often an interpreter. As I mentioned, Zechariah has an angel to guide him, much like Jesus often gave an interpretation uh, of his parables to his disciples. Of course, where no interpretation is given, we must be very careful in our interpretation. But unlike a parable, the angel's explanation will often go beyond simply interpreting the symbols of the vision. And when this is done, this will often become the main message. And that's something we'll see in the vision this morning. Also, unlike the parables, which are often called earthly stories with heavenly meanings, these visions can in some ways be characterized as just the opposite, heavenly stories with earthly meanings. That may be putting the contrast a bit strongly, but what we will see in these visions is heavenly in the sense that they can be strange and otherworldly. But what is revealed will concern what the Lord will do on the earth, not just in Zechariah's day, but also moving forward in time with the coming of the Messiah and even to the end of the world. So those are a few principles of interpretation, which we will begin to apply with this first vision this morning. Let's begin reading again verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, And behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. This verse sets the scene for Zechariah's vision. It's a nighttime scene in which there's a man riding a red horse amidst myrtle trees in a a glen or a a ravine. I'm no expert on horses, but when we speak of a red horse, that refers to a reddish-brown, more often called a bay or a chestnut horse. Myrtles are small evergreen trees or often classified as shrubs. They're native to the Judean hills. They can grow to be about six, between six and eight feet tall. Now, some think the myrtles represent Israel. I think this is perhaps reading too much into the details. Myrtles are here, here are just setting the scene. Behind the chief horsemen are many more horses, red, sorrel, and white. The exact numbers are not given, but... It's more than one of each color. If you're not familiar with that term, sorrel, it's again another, another horse word. It's the term for a lighter reddish-brown horse. And the colors of the horses, it's another scene-setting detail. Some seek to interpret it, but again, it's just a detail, and these are ordinary horse colors. While only the horses are mentioned here in verse 8, we know that they had riders because the riders speak in verse 11. Now, last time we noted that in Zechariah, the Lord is often referred to as the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. And in this vision, we see the horsemen of the armies of the Lord of hosts. Now, if you can picture the whole scene in your mind, this glen, it's sheltered by myrtle trees. It serves as a gathering point for the horsemen of the Lord who have met here under the cover of darkness. Can you picture it? But what are they doing? Why have they gathered? If you're confused at this point, you're not alone because Zechariah is asking the same questions. And so we read in verse 9. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Here we learn that Zechariah is accompanied by an angel. 
who interprets the visions for him. But it is not the angel who answers his question, but rather the chief horseman, who is now dismounted. He is now standing among the myrtles. Verse 10. So the man who is standing among the myrtles, the myrtle trees, answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. He says that the task of the horseman is to patrol the earth, referring not just to the boundaries of Judah where God's people dwell, but referring to all the earth. And to patrol is to walk back and forth, to provide surveillance and security, but most of all to gather information. Think of a policeman in what's often called his patrol car, driving around the streets. His visible presence is a reminder to all to obey the law. And he's always there, ready to respond to any disturbance of law and order. Nowadays, a police uh, being inside a car with the windows rolled up, police can sometimes be a bit isolated from the community. But being mounted up high on a horse, you would have a good vantage point to see, to gather information. And also from the horse, it would be easy to talk to, get to know the people around you. During this time, the Persians were famous for their networks of horsemen who patrolled the empire and gathered information throughout it. In fact, their networks of horsemen were one of the chief sources of their great strength. For knowledge is power when it comes to ruling a far-flung empire. While the, while the Persians patrolled their empire, the Lord's horsemen patrolled the entire earth, gathering knowledge for him, extending his power across the entire world. This reflects the universal knowledge and power of our God, what we call his omniscience, his omnipotence. Of course, God being God, being everywhere present, he doesn't strictly need angels to patrol in order to know what is going on on the earth. And yet, according to this vision, he has his servants, the angels, at work throughout the world, doing his bidding. It is a great comfort to be reminded that God is all-knowing. He is all-powerful, and his angels are always watching as they patrol the earth in his service. As it says in Psalm 47, 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Next we have the report of the horsemen. Verse 11, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Here in verse 11, several new things are revealed. I already mentioned that the riders of the other horses speak, as we see here. But notice who they speak to. Their chief, the rider of the red horse, who is now revealed to be the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a mysterious figure who shows up several times in the Old Testament. He appears to Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Then he appears to Moses in the burning bush that was not consumed. 
There are several other appearances throughout the Old Testament. On one hand, he is distinguished from God, and yet he is also closely identified with God, particularly in that appearance in the burning bush. The solution to the riddle comes with the New Testament when it is revealed that God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three and yet one. And so we must conclude that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Son of God. And so it is appropriate here that the Son of God is leading the angelic hosts. Next we see that the horsemen, we see the horsemen give their report saying, They have patrolled the earth, that they have found it to be at rest. You might hear that report and interpret it as a good thing. The earth is at rest, all is well. But if you remember the context of God's people in Jerusalem in their distress, you will understand the response of the angel of the Lord in verse 12, which is to lament this situation. For God's people are under the oppression of a foreign king, even as they have been restored to their own land. Israel has no rest, while the ungodly nations all around are at rest. Israel's desire is not that their oppressors would rest at peace, but that God would throw them into turmoil, and that he would take vengeance on their enemies. Here I think it's worth pausing a moment to consider some application to our situation today. Does it often seem today that the church is small? While the darkness of worldliness is growing around us, the worldly rest at ease while we labor and are hard-pressed. I know it certainly seems that the culture in our country is headed swiftly in the wrong direction, and yet people seem to be at peace in their sin. In this situation, we need to trust in the Lord. And remember that their peace is only skin deep. It is only temporary. As Asaph, the writer of Psalm 73, came to realize, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly. By terrors. In the end, sinners will perish in their sin. But even this is not something we rejoice in because we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The people of this world are not strictly an enemy to be hated and opposed, but a mission field to whom we proclaim the gospel. And so, yes, it does grieve us when they are at peace in their sin. For we would rather they know the peril that they are in, so that they might flee from sin and embrace the gospel, embrace the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's continue. Verse 12, the angel's cry of lament as he responds to the report of the horsemen. Reading verse 12. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? Note the boldness with which the angel of the Lord approaches God in prayer. The words, 
how long are characteristic of biblical lament. And they come from a heart longing to be set free from affliction. But in this case, it's not the angel's own hurt, but his sympathy for Israel that causes him to cry out. The angel also shows that he knows God's word and he bases his prayers upon God's word and his promises. And that's one key to praying with power, to base your prayers on the word of God. For God had promised through the prophet Jeremiah only 70 years of exile. And those 70 years had now been completed. The people had returned to the land. And yet even after their return, they still felt like captives, even in their own land. The city around them still lay mostly in ruins. The temple, the physical symbol of God's presence in their midst, still had not been rebuilt. And as we saw, the Persians ruling over them were at peace while they were being oppressed. And so the question is, how long will this unbearable situation persist? When will God at last pour out streams of mercy upon his people? Before we see the Lord's answers to these questions, let me encourage you. If you find yourself afflicted, even despairing, first, know that the same Son of God who prayed this prayer of lament and intercession on behalf of God's people, he is now serving as your great high priest who is always interceding at the right hand of God for you. He prays with the same compassion, with the same boldness, with the same intensity, seeking the good of all his people. Second, know that you too can approach the throne of grace with boldness. And we have many examples of prayers of lament recorded in the scriptures, especially in the Psalms. Look to Psalm 10, Psalm 13, Psalm 74. These are Psalms to go to. And pray these psalms in your time of need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now let's see the Lord's reply, verse 13. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. The angel then passes on the Lord's words in verses 14 to 17. In these words, we get to the very heart of the message of this vision. Verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Fry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. And I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. This message begins with the words to Zechariah, cry out. This is a proclamation of good news for all God's people to hear. And it will be Zechariah's job after receiving these comforting words to declare them to God's people. And then we see here a contrast. God declares that he is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, while he is exceedingly angry with the nations who are resting 
at their ease. Well, jealousy can have negative connotations, especially when applied to sinful human beings. God's jealousy is entirely appropriate, for it describes the strength of his love for his people. It could also be translated his zeal or his, his passion. God is described as a jealous God in the Ten Commandments because he wants his beloved people, his bride, he wants us all for himself. And then Exodus 34, 14, it goes even further. It says, for you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God's love is so exclusive, it is so protective that jealous is even considered a name for God. God's great love and zeal for his people and their dwelling place in Jerusalem is contrasted with his exceeding anger with the nations who are at their ease. Although he had used Babylon as an instrument to punish his people with exile, they had taken it too far. The nations had furthered the disaster. We'll get more details about God's plan for the nations in Zechariah's second vision next week. But needless to say, if a little anger with his beloved people led to their exile, God's exceeding anger with the nations will not end well for them. But we get more of the gracious and comforting words in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Here we have a reassurance to God's people that he has returned to dwell with his people in Jerusalem and to dwell with them in mercy. Ezekiel had witnessed the departure of the Lord's presence from the temple in a vision as recorded in Ezekiel 10 and 11. This was just prior to the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. It was not, as you might assume, the Lord's forsaking his people, but his presence departing from Jerusalem to go and be with them in exile. And now that they had returned, even though the temple had not yet been rebuilt, he was there with them, even if they had not yet realized it. He had returned to Jerusalem, for he had returned with his people. They had returned to him, and so he had returned to them. And God's holy presence is the key to all that follows. As Meredith Klein writes, apart from God's presence, there is no restoration, no holy land, no holy city, no holy temple, for it is this presence alone that sanctifies. He is the one from whom all blessings flow, the fount of all covenant beatitude. And so he promises that the temple will soon be rebuilt. This is the, the physical symbol of his presence in the midst of his people. The temple is not strictly required for 
God is already there. But it will be required for obedience sake. For the prophet Haggai is prophesying alongside Zechariah, calling the people to the work of temple construction. Next we see stretching out the measuring line. This is the first step in marking out where to lay the foundations of a building. And here it is God's way of saying that along with the rebuilding of the temple, the entire city of Jerusalem will be built up anew. First the temple at the heart of the city, and then along with it, the whole city will be rebuilt. In Nehemiah's day, about 70 years later, the walls of the city will finally be rebuilt. The vision closes with a final proclamation declaring a bold promise of great prosperity in verse 17. And notice that the word again is used four times, four times in this verse. Verse 17, cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. An excellent way to summarize this, the message of this verse is a reversal of the exile. The repeated use of the word again emphasizes a restoration of past glory. His promise speaks of the Lord again choosing Jerusalem because he had rejected it. He had cast it off in the exile, but now he will restore it. He will dwell in it again in the rebuilt temple surrounded by a rebuilt Jerusalem. But note carefully that he is not again, he's again choosing Jerusalem, but he is not again choosing his people because he, though he had strongly disciplined them, he had never forsaken them. He had never cast them off. But it's not only Jerusalem that will be restored, as we will see. The message of Zechariah is about a spiritually restored people as well as a restored priesthood and ultimately a new king to come from the line of David, the long-awaited Messiah to come. Now, one way of speaking of God's presence with his people is God with us, Emmanuel. And as we've seen, the angel of the Lord riding on the red horse was the pre-incarnate son of God who one day would take on flesh to come and dwell in our midst, even our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one whom the Apostle John beheld in a vision in Revelation chapter 1, not standing in a grove of myrtles, but in the midst of seven lampstands, representing his presence dwelling in the midst of his church. He is Jesus Christ, the Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, who has promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. He is the one who interceded on the behalf of God's people with this cry of lament, and he is still today our great high priest who is always interceding for us on high at the right hand of God. Not only did God promise a rebuilt temple in Zechariah's day, but Christ is at work building his holy temple today, his church. And you are the living stones being built up in that mighty building, even as the Holy Spirit is dwelling within you. And Christ was not only the rider on the red horse, 
but also the one whom the Apostle John saw will one day ride upon a white horse at the head of the armies of heaven to strike down the nations and to capture the beast, his prophet, and Satan and throw them into the lake of fire forever. And then the rider will sit down to feast with his bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The great comfort to God's people in affliction is the good news that God is with us. And from God's presence flows not only comfort, but all other blessings. He is the source of our strength. He is the one who sanctifies us from within. He is our sustainer and our provider, the one who causes our cup to overflow. He is with us even now, and he will be with us forever. If you have strayed from us, strayed from him, he is not far away. For as we saw last time, his message to you is, return to me and I will return to you. Now is the time. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And with his pardon comes his presence. And from God's presence flows all comfort and all blessing. Our Lord Jesus Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And he has promised never to leave us, never to forsake us. And so we say with the psalmist, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, we do rejoice in Jesus Christ, who is not only the rider on the red horse, but also our great high priest, and also Emmanuel, God with us, who is present with us even now through his spirit who dwells within us. We thank you uh, that we come to you through him as he even is interceding for us now. We thank you that from your presence flows out all blessings and we do uh, seek even now your face and know that as we seek you through Christ, uh, you do uh, bless us with grace and mercy through him. We do pray, Lord, that you would grow us in the knowledge of Christ, in the knowledge of all the blessings that we have received in Christ, and that you would strengthen us in your service uh, through him. We pray these things in his name. Amen.